good to be here again at Community Bible Church. Um, it's kind of a treat for me to speak on the topic of money and giving. I don't get asked to speak on that often. I suspect because um, as an employee of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, I actually raise funds, and so people assume a fundraising missionary shouldn't talk about giving. It's both awkward <laughs> at a number of different levels, um, as well as a, a little unusual, but um, it strikes me that we think about money, and as you think about giving, there can be um, two reactions, one of which is a, a sort of level of discomfort, right? Um, now, if you were here last time I spoke, I spoke about several uncomfortable things. We won't go in that direction again. But um, there's a little discomfort because money is this intensely private, um, intensely personal area of our lives. Um, and I think its power over us is reflected by the discomfort we have whenever it comes up in conversation. Because immediately we start thinking, how much do I have? How much do you think I have? How much do you have? What's going on in this conversation? Do you think I have too much? Do you think I have too little? Should I be working a little harder to get it? Should I give, right? There's all of this anxiety that rises within us. And the only things that cause that kind of anxiety, I think, are things that are deeply personal, deeply important to us. Um, it's a sign of how deeply attached we are and how important they are. And why I think scripture often refers to money as an alternative God to us. Uh, because you're only concerned about things that have that kind of power over you. The other half of us may not feel any discomfort because we've come to expect churches or visiting missionaries to talk about this kind of thing. And I suspect part of this comfort then is the church hasn't always been very good with money. Um, it's been, uh, certainly we can all name ministries that have abused our trust and used money poorly. We've certainly been at places where when money comes up, it becomes an issue of guilt, um, an issue of um, obligation or responsibility where you feel vaguely oppressed. And you know, at the end of the series, there's going to be this appeal for money, and so I should just budget now and figure out how much do I have to give so that the guilt goes away. I want to suggest instead, though, that the picture that God gives of both um, ownership but also of giving is actually based deeply on an experience of joy. Joy in his giving, joy in our receiving, and then joy in our ability to give in return. One of the songs uh, that came to mind as I was thinking through 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15, um, emerges out of actually work in China um, during the Boxer Rebellion um, as a group of Chinese really throughout the country, but especially in the south of China, rose in rebellion against the imperialist powers that controlled much of China at the time, uh, Britain among them. Several missionaries from the China Inland Mission were killed. Uh, knowing this, one of the leaders of the China Inland Mission at the time, Frank Houghton, uh, went to China, or was actually in China, went to go visit one of the missionary compounds where several people died. And as he was taking the train there, he began to reflect on what um, what good news could I offer these people who've watched uh, family members, friends, colleagues, people that you had spent and committed to live your life with die around you? People who were living in great fear that um, not only had their friends died, but they could die as well because the fighting had not yet ceased. People who were really, to use a monetary analogy, had paid the ultimate cost. What good news would you have for them? As he was praying, as he was reflecting, as he was listening to God, it was verse 9 of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians that came to mind for him, to him. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And he wrote a Christmas carol, not very popular in um, most hymnals, but one that I learned when I was in college. Uh, the lyrics are sweet, the music is sweeter, I shan't sing it to you for fear of offending everyone, but, or at least distracting you, but the lyrics he wrote were these. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paves courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becomes poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenwards by thy eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. And as he began to reflect on what it meant that he was inviting not just the families of those who were grieving, but the entire community that recognized that they could be called to give up their entire life, what came to mind to him was not an exhortation to persevere or um, an invitation to give ever more deeply or generously, even to the point of death. It was a reflection on what Jesus Christ accomplished. And that's actually what I think Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians 8. Sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. The context is this. He's, he's been uh, writing to the Corinthians. He's been involved in lengthy negotiation, rebuke, and encouragement of them through this letter. And he gets to chapter 8, and he's starting to talk about this collection that he's trying to raise. Um, if you're not familiar uh, with the New Testament, or if you haven't read it over and over again, it might be easy to miss, but this is a project that Paul has been working on for at least 10 years, if not closer to 20 years. Uh, in Galatians 2... Uh, he meets with some of the senior apostles, and they agree that uh, John, James, and Peter will go toward and work with the Jews, and that uh, Paul and his companions would be the apostles to the Gentiles. And the one condition that they made was, obviously, uh, the Gentiles didn't need to become Jews first, but the Jewish Christians said, if you could ask the Gentiles to do one thing as they come to faith, they don't need to become circumcised, they don't need to worry about all of the things that Jews worry about, would you continue to remember the poor in Jerusalem? And Paul takes that idea, and for the next 10 to 20 years, in every church that he plants all across the North Mediterranean, he begins to help them think about how to raise money to send toward the poor in Jerusalem, toward the poor Jews. And so you see it mentioned in Galatians. It's here again in 2 Corinthians. He talks about it at the end of Romans. It's what drives him in Acts 20 to return to Jerusalem with a gift for the church at that point that leads to his eventual arrest and deportation to Rome. It's a part of the story that actually consumes a lot of the narrative and the trajectory of the New Testament. And um, the reason he wants to do it is he wants to show that even though Jew and Gentiles um, ethnically are different, even though they're approaching Christ in parallel ways which honor what Jesus Christ accomplished, they are one body. And they're going to demonstrate their unity together uh, by Gentiles serving and giving sacrificially so that the Jews who are Christians in Jerusalem know that um, their family has increased and that the nations are truly bringing their wealth into uh, the heavenly kingdom of God, at least to the place of Jerusalem, and it's enriching the people who are there, moving them out of uh, pretty desperate poverty at the time. It's striking to me that in this kind of context, as Paul works on this issue, it occupies nearly two chapters of 2 Corinthians. And so it's clearly a, a significant issue in his mind, and I just want to look at the first 15 verses. As you look at the first 15 verses, 
Um, what strikes you, I hope, immediately is that the center of the passage physically that we're looking at is also thematically the center. And it's those verses in 8 and 9. Paul says, I'm not commanding you about this uh, gift that I'm encouraging you to give to Jerusalem, but I want, you, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of the Macedonians, which he refers to at the beginning of the chapter. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That God's grace, and grace is a word that appears multiple times in 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, actually more often than any other part, any other book that he writes. Um, God's grace provides both the reason and the model for our own giving. What Paul seems to say is this, I want you to finish this collection, Corinthians, because you know that because of his grace, Jesus Christ gave himself for you. So that out of his riches, you who were poor would become rich. We give because God gives. That the very nature of God expressed in Jesus Christ is that he's a giver. He gives us a creation to enjoy, a world to discover, explore, and delight in, as Barbara's prayer reminded us this morning. In Jesus Christ's incarnation, he gave up his heavenly glory and embraced our earthly reality. In his crucifixion, he gives up his sinlessness and imputes to us and gives us righteousness. And his resurrection, he gives us his spirit and allows us to see his glory. Literally, what Paul seems to be suggesting is when we give because God is a giver, we participate in the very purposes and in a very significant part of God's nature. When we give, we get to do what God is doing. The God who gives us breath and gives us life. The God who gives us the opportunities that we have. The God who, frankly, for most of us here in the West, gives us sufficient resources that having a conversation about giving actually makes sense and is necessary. right? Because in many parts of the world, while giving is still an obligation and an opportunity for discipleship, it can't always be assumed. When we give, we participate in God's nature because God is a giver. Let me reflect back on the other side of my life, which is an university staff worker raising support. One of the stories I tell a lot of my colleagues when we're working on fundraising together, I think reflects this pretty well. Um, a friend of mine uh, went to go visit a, uh, a friend of mine named Ken was going to go visit a friend of his in order to do a fundraising meeting. Now, Ken's friend knew this. Ken's friend knew that Ken had to raise support, and so he'd invited him over for dinner. So Ken went, and it was one of those perfect days, right? You go and you visit your friend, you have a deeply meaningful conversation, you have a great meal together, and the end of the evening approaches, and Ken just thinks, I don't want to bring up the fundraising thing, it's so awkward, we've had this great evening, we've had this great time together, we've had this great meal, um, I'll just do it some other time. Now, if you're a professional fundraiser, somebody who has to do it as part of their job, you realize Ken made several mistakes, one of which wasn't which was not bringing this up right away, not dealing with it at the front end of the meeting, allowing everything to go on. All of us have been there, right? When you need to ask a friend for something, but the social part of the conversation goes on too long, now it feels a little awkward. So Ken just thought, I'm going to get up and leave. Well, Ken's friend, as they were standing, moving toward the door, said, hey, Ken, you haven't asked me about the money yet. <laughs> oh, right? Ken is humiliated. He's embarrassed, and he's just like, you know, we were having this great evening, and it just felt so awkward, and I didn't know what to do. And, and Ken's friend said this, Ken, don't cheat me out of my opportunity for holiness. 
when you don't ask me about how I will use my money, whether I will give it or whether I will keep it for myself, you deny me an opportunity to look at everything I have in light of what God has given me. You, give me, you cheat me out of an opportunity to participate in what God is doing through your ministry and in your life and in your work. You're cheating me out of an opportunity to get involved in God's purposes. Ken, don't cheat me out of my opportunity for holiness. Ask me if I want to support you. His friend got it. God's grace is both the reason and the model for our giving, and because God is a giver, when we give, we get to participate in what God is doing and participate in his very nature. God's giving, right, emerges out of his love, is total in its expression, and is completely other-directed in its purposes. God dies in our place and on our behalf to save us. He gets nothing out of it other than an opportunity to express his love and to save people that he desperately cares for. I suspect it's because of this very reason that the New Testament doesn't renew the application of the tithe to the Christian people. Now, you're all familiar, I trust, with the Old Testament description of the tithe. That in various places in the Old Testament legislation, the people of God were commanded to give one-tenth of all of their flocks or one-tenth of the fruit of their fields uh, for three main purposes. Um, one of which was to support the Levites, who both provided the religious infrastructure and served uh, the people of God by leading the worship of God, and in doing so, didn't have the time or capacity to tend their own fields or grow their own flocks. Part of the way that you might use a tithe as well was to care for the poor in your country, in your village, so that every three years the tithe was stored in the village and was used to feed the people who didn't have an opportunity to feed themselves. And the third way that you would use a tithe would be, um, God has this tremendous command, if you can't bring your flocks uh, to Jerusalem, um, convert into money, and then buy the best stuff. And he says, get the best food, get the best drink, get the best, and just have a feast, and allow yourself to enjoy it. And feed others uh, in a great celebration of God's goodness um, and benefits. Now, actually in the Old Testament, if you begin to add up all of the tithes, that people gave, the estimate is actually there were probably two to three or four of them even, and that even before you began the offerings and the sacrifices, you might be committing 20 to 30% of your income each year. So even at a flat thing, the idea of a 10% floor for our gifts doesn't actually comport with anything that the Old Testament was talking about. The Old Testament was asking for much more. Now, you could argue the tithe also served both... Um, was the equivalent of a tax that we would pay now because many of the things that used the tithe for uh, providing for the religious and social infrastructure as well as feeding the poor, some of our tax taxes go to as well. Um, but it's interesting as you look from Old Testament to New that at no point does Jesus ever say the tithe, a fantastic idea, let's keep doing it. No time do you ever get the apostle saying, let's continue this practice of tithing. It's clearly assumed Jesus talks about how people are tithing. He talks about fallacies around tithing. And actually, more often than not, when Jesus refers to tithing, he's actually condemning the misuse of the practice. But I think the reason the New Testament doesn't show at least a deep appreciation for the tithe, or necessarily renew its application, is in light of what Jesus Christ has done, if he's the model because God is a giver, then... The command to tithe, in some ways, demeans the act of giving, which should emerge out of love and delight for what God has accomplished. Right? Men know this full well. On Valentine's Day. 
the flowers, the gift, the card, may be motivated out of love if you can get out of your mind the fact that Hallmark is really driving this florist have jacked up their prices by two to five times, and you have to do it. And the women know, even though as delightful as it is to get it, but you would not want to not get one, it would be far more significant to you if on a non-Valentine's Day, out of just delight, you got the gift instead. Right? Every Mother's Day and Father's Day, every one of those Hallmark holidays, I, as I think of them, they create the wrong conditions for the gifts that we so long for. And what Paul seems to go back to is, you know what Jesus is like. Give like that. Out of deep love and out of your initiative to give to someone else as an act of grace, not because you've been compelled. I think in light of God's grace, the command doesn't merely demean the act of giving, but talking about a percentage guideline for giving sounds vaguely grotesque, doesn't it? God gives all of himself in the incarnation and the crucifixion. He embraces all of who we are and redeems all of who we will be. He doesn't offer just a percentage of himself. 10% of me went into the incarnation. <laughs> the other 90% I reserve for myself. And Trinity aside, it's only one out of the three members of the Trinity, but it's the whole person, right? All of God, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human. If the model is you're being invited to participate in what God does and become a little bit more like who God is, it's both demeaning and grotesque to go, well, 10% is really what we're aiming for. In light of God's grace, I want to suggest also the focus on tithing directs attention overly on the cost to us and insufficiently on the benefit to others. At no point on the cross do I see Jesus go, wow, this is a really costly thing. I want to reconsider. <laughs> There's certainly an expression of the cost, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, the most chilling words I can imagine the second person of the Trinity ever saying out loud. But ultimately, it's the other seven words that we reflect on on that Good Friday service that are so profound, aren't they? Even as he's dying on the cross, looking at his mother and then looking at John and saying, John, this is now your mom. Take care of her for me. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It is done. And that like a focus on tithing. What's actually 10% of my income? Is that gross or net? Does it include royalties or things that I can't anticipate? How about those special gifts from family and friends? Does it include birthday gifts as well? Do I need to tithe off that? Focuses overly on what we're doing and the cost to us and insufficiently on what the great gift should accomplish in the lives of others. This is why Jesus goes after the jot and tittle thing with um, the Pharisees. You worry so much like this little mint leaf, do I have to tithe off of this little sprig of thyme? That's not the point, is what Jesus was trying to say. Give with your hearts, give delightfully and joyfully to advance God's kingdom, to care for God's people. If you give, you give for the sake of giving the gift to the other person, to give them joy and delight. You don't keep thinking about how much it's cost you. Which is probably what takes half of the enjoyment out of Christmas for many of us, isn't it? We both feel like you're compelled to give, you have to assess how much you're going to give to people, and you have to think about whether you can pay for it or not. And none of the spontaneity or joy or the delight of, I can't.
can't believe until their eyes light up, their face beams, their heart is filled with joy when they finally get the thing that they really could use, the thing that they really need, the thing that would bring them joy. God's grace expressed in Jesus Christ provides both the reason and the model for our giving. It's an invitation to joy for us, not an invitation to a burden. And while the language of tithing is helpful, and it may be an initial step for us as we think about how to give, um, it may be fundamentally misguided for us to woodenly apply what the Old Testament has in light of the gratuitously prodigal generosity that we've experienced in Jesus Christ and who God is. Paul has that theological underpinning for what he writes. And then he says, look, the Macedonians provide an example of this kind of giving to you, Corinthians. Because the Corinthians, as he's pointed out in this passage, originally said they were very eager to raise money to give to the poor in Jerusalem, the poor Christians. Were the first people to make the initial gifts, but somewhere over the course of a year or two, the giving kind of just petered out on them. Now, if you've read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, there were a lot of reasons for them to be distracted. People were sleeping with the wrong people, they were boasting of the wrong things, there were divisions in the church. And so Paul's trying to remind them, in a very, in a very interesting kind of way, don't lose focus on this. This is a very important process we're in. And so he, he kind of provokes them to a little jealousy, encourages a little holy competition, I think. Right? Look at how he starts out chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. You know, out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Corinth, the richest city in Greece. <laughs> for, I, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they didn't do it as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he earlier made a beginning, to also bring to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech, talk a lot, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Now, the churches in Macedonia were the churches that were addressed in the books of like Philippians. Philippi was in the north, Thessalonica was in the north, Berea, who you encountered in Acts. But Paul says, they're giving you an example of the kind of giving that Jesus Christ did. Um, and he points out two things that I want to at least look at very quickly. First, giving is a grace. It's a gift, and therefore, it's a gift that he's encouraging the Corinthians to seek and that perhaps we should seek for ourselves as well, right? He talks about, I want you to know the grace the Macedonians have been given in order to participate in this. And that um, in verse 4, they urgently plead with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the saints. That language there is, they urgently plead with us for the grace, the gift to participate in this process with us. Um, Paul compares the generosity of the Macedonians to the other spiritual gifts that the Corinthians already had. Now, I read a little sarcasm, frankly, in Paul's language, but it's probably, I'm projecting, I'm kind of a sarcastic person, and so I see a little sarcasm everywhere I go. He's like, look, you have so much faith. You have great ability to talk. You have a deep knowledge of who God is, and you're really earnest. You'll notice, though, that all these things are very self-directed, right? It's about the faith that you have, the speech that you have for one another, um, the knowledge that you have, 
earnestness. And he says, the one thing you don't seem to have is the ability to give it away to someone else, to serve somebody else by this. And he says, the Macedonians have this gift, and I would love for you to excel in this gift as well. So even though it's a gift you don't have, you can grow into it. What would it look like if we actually believed that giving was a spiritual gift on the order of faith, love, or prayer? On the order of service, hospitality, or helps? Imagine if, rather than believing some people are just inherently generous, and others of us are just really good stewards with our money, we actually thought that giving was an opportunity to experience more of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life and was something that we should long for and seek with the same intensity that we would say, I would love to become a prayerful person. I'd love to become a great evangelist. I'd love to be kind and, uh, and gracious to the people around us. What would it look like for us to pray and to practice the gift of generosity? Um, what strikes me is that the Macedonians urgently pleaded for the grace of participating in this collection. When they saw an opportunity, and they thought they were going to be denied an opportunity to participate in it because they were a little too poor, they were being economically slighted because of persecution, and they were threatened socially, they said, don't leave us out. Don't cheat us out of our opportunity for holiness. Give us a chance. Because when we give, we participate in what God is doing, and it gives us great joy. What would it look like to pray that that was the nature of our hearts. Because it isn't necessarily a natural thing, Paul seems to suggest. Just like faith, speech, <clears throat> and knowledge of who God is, which are all gifts from him, joy and generosity is a gift as well. One of the things that we talk about in university as we're training young staff, new staff to meet with donors, you get to the awkward part in a meeting where you outlined what university does and what you're trying to do, you actually have to do the ask. You have to invite them to give. And it's always this terribly awkward moment. It's very similar to the awkward moment that we have in evangelism when you ask non-Christians to become a Christian. And so we think it's good for our staff to do this because if you can do it with fundraising, you can probably ask somebody to become a Christian. And if you can't do it, you can't do either, I suspect. But one of the things is we've reflected on the act of inviting people to give based out of this passage, I suspect, knowing my friend Pete who trained us in this, is not to ask, so are you willing to give? which, you know, talks a little, at least about the right kind of things, or, you know, would you give, which talks about capacity. One of the questions we ask people is, what would give you joy as you give? Moving it from an issue of willingness, which is probably always there, or capacity, which may not be, but inviting them into the discipleship opportunity of pressing into what would it look like if you were to express the spiritual gift of giving? What would bring you joy as you began to do it? The other thing that strikes me is that in the Macedonian uh, situation of giving, it's not just a gift, a spiritual gift which can be sought, generosity in giving, but it's a pretty universal gift which can be experienced as well. The tithe, at least in the Old Testament, probably could have only been given by landowners. As it talks about the fruit that you have, the plants that you grow, and the flocks that you care for, if you lived in an urban city, if you weren't a landowner, if you couldn't generate economic activity, but were merely people who um, depended on others, the farmers and agrarian society in that case, to generate economic activity, you didn't really have anything to tithe. You didn't make any. You didn't grow anything. Right? If you were a carpenter living in Nazareth, for example, you might not have much of a garden. 
you might be relying on the work of your hands. And so, at least in the Old Testament tithe, as it was narrowly construed, you'd have very little to participate in. But the Macedonians seem to suggest, regardless of their ability, regardless of what other people thought, everyone had the opportunity and could participate in this incredible gift. The Macedonians gave out of their poverty. Um, and in the end, part of what we believe deeply is that giving is not a gift reserved merely for those people who, have, who are people of means. That giving is actually a universal opportunity for the church. Now, usually somewhere in a sermon on tithing, somebody has a story of, while well, I earned very little money, I managed to tithe, and God never let us go without. Right? You've all heard these stories, I trust, if you've been in a church long enough. I won't tell a story like that. I'll, say, I'll let somebody else do that if they need to. Um, I was struck by the importance of believing that everyone has an opportunity to give at least something, even if it isn't money. As I recall this story by Gordon Cosby, a pastor uh, who was a pastor at the Deep South. It's told by Ben Patterson in his book, Serving God. Um, ben writes, the most poignant instance of this dignity of giving I've ever heard comes from a story Gordon, Co Gordon Cosby tells of his first pastorate in a little Baptist church in the Deep South. In his congregation, there was a widow um, with six children. She was supporting her family on a paltry wage of $40 a month. So clearly, some time ago, but it gives you a sense of her means. One day, while going through the church records, Cosby was astonished to discover was giving the church $4 a month, a tithe of her meager income. He brought this to the attention of the deacons, who were as astonished and embarrassed as he was that the church was taking money from this poor woman. Why? The church should be giving her money instead, not the other way around. The deacon board instructed Cosby to make a pastoral call and let her off the hook. So Cosby went and visited the lady and told her she did not need to feel any obligation to give to the church, but to keep the money for herself and her children. He writes, I'm not wise now. I was less wise then. I went and told her of the concern of the deacons. I told her as graciously and as supportively as I knew how as I did, sorry, I told her as graciously and supportively as I knew how that she was relieved of the responsibility of giving. As I talked with her, tears came to her eyes. I want to tell you, she said, that you are taking away the last thing that gives my life dignity and meaning. Ben Patterson reflects then, that lady knew what it meant to be a human being made in the image of God. Her dignity as a person was grounded not in what she had, but what she did with what she had. She had the honor of being a steward of the little section of the world that God had given in her trust. So Paul grounds our giving in the opportunity to participate in what God is doing. And he says, look, the joy of giving is a spiritual gift that we can all pursue, that we can all develop and all grow in. And then he offers some very simple guidelines which should shape the kind of giving that we need to participate in, in verses 10 through 15. So this is what he says to them. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. 
What are some of the guidelines that Paul offers this idea of giving? Because frankly, when you talk about giving, you say, look, your model should be like that of Jesus Christ. Give everything away. Practically, you think, I don't know how you can do that. And then when you think, you shouldn't give just so that you think about how much you're giving or how little you're giving, but what you can accomplish in the lives of others. Those of you who are on the mission trip know the needs are absolute immense. You could have spent your entire lives in Tennessee, and you'd have made a dent, but not a big enough dent. We could give away all the assets we have and all the assets we'll earn, send it overseas, and in a day it would be consumed in an offering of food to the most destitute needy. And tomorrow would still come. What do you do? How can you not be oppressed or burdened by these realities? Well, Paul reminds us in verses 10 through 12. The origins of this kind of giving as a guideline emerges from the initiative of the giver. That's his advice, right? Um, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, your gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. What he really seems to be suggesting is that um, less, less important to God is the amount than the desire. Of course he would say that. And we all know it, but it's something that we can embrace. More critical to God is the generosity of spirit which pushes out the gift than the actual quantity of the gift itself. As soon as we think too much about, is this enough, is this the right amount, what we should do, we lose track of the initial desire, I want to offer this to you, God. If God is truly omnipotent and all-powerful, that we firmly believe the totality of what we offer is not actually the primary limitation on the ability of God to work. Now, we also know that God delights in partnering with us and gives us actually the dignity of causality as we give so that the things that we do offer, he delightfully uses for his purposes. But giving it the end emerges out of the initiative of the giver. It can't emerge out of um, the deep need that you see before you. It can't emerge out of guilt or oppression. It can't emerge out of a deep-seated sense of obligation which has no joy. Giving emerges, Paul suggests, by the deep willingness that you have to participate in what God is doing, to participate in who God invites us to become. And there is a line between, I want to suggest, the discipline of giving to joy, which is actually the practice of giving. Now, I played piano, or practiced piano, playing, maybe overstating what I actually achieved. But if any of you have played a musical instrument, you know, there are years of dull work. Years and years of scales and finger exercises. Years and years of playing music that not only fails to delight your ears, but brings no joy to your heart. Music which, frankly, bores you because you cannot imagine one more variation of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on your Suzuki violin, or another, if any of us grew up around piano playing people, could we listen to Fur Elise yet one more time without crying? But there is a point when the discipline of doing something brings you to the freedom of actually being able to do it without terribly much thought, when you actually are able to throw yourself in and lose yourself in the experience. And then you have joy. For those of you who um, engage in sportsman, sports-like activities, of which I very, understand very little, but have been told in theory the same thing has happened. 
that my golfing friends tell me after years and years of practicing a swing. I don't understand how they do it. There comes a day, and all the research suggests after about 10,000 hours of practice, according to psychologists and scientists at this point, when things become natural. When the swing moves with thought and consideration, but without obsession on, is, are my legs in the right place? Am I holding it the right way? Did I flex myself the same way? The body does what the body needs to do, and you have that magical experience of everything happening perfectly and well. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm betting that yes is a, a, a cry of aspiration and hope. <laughs> but what Paul seems to suggest, it's the willingness that we have which is critical, and yet he also invites us to the discipline of continuing to do it so that the practice eventually leads us to a place of joy. There are limits, he wants to suggest, to the giving that we need to do as well. He talks about attempting to address the inequality of caring, uh, by caring for the poor. Uh, and I suspect he's thinking about those uh, who are either involuntarily poor because of their circumstances or voluntarily poor because of um, their choice of vocation and ministry in verses 13 and 15. And he does two things as he thinks about limitations, one of which is whenever you draw a circle, you expand um, your perception and as well as decrease um, your responsibilities. And part of what he's doing as he's um, thinking about its limits is he's expanding our scope. Um, He's challenging the Corinthians to care for others who are beyond their own family and their own connections. He's encouraging them to give to believers that they will never meet who are ethnically distinct from them, who in some cases have been the source of oppression to them. And he says, and yet I invite you to give. I invite you to give generously, I invite you to give deeply, and I invite you to give well. Those people who you will never see are part of the family to which you belong. He also interestingly limits the scope a little and chooses that language of equality, which is often troubling to us. Um, if Paul were speaking now, I suspect Fox News would pick this up immediately and accuse him of being a socialist, if not a communist. But what Paul seems to suggest by quoting um, Exodus, which is what he's doing in verse 15, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little, is not that there was actual equality in absolute assets, because that certainly was never the experience of the early church. But by quoting this verse, he's referring back to the collection of manna by the people of God as they wandered around the wilderness during the period of the Exodus. And what seemed to happen was, no matter how much you gathered, no matter how much little you gathered, eventually you measured it out, and each person was given a set amount. And what he seems to be saying is, um, minimally, let there be sufficiency. Minimally, let there be enough so that as everyone gathered man in the wilderness, he who gathered a lot and he who gathered little, when it's all shared, everybody had enough to eat. That part of the limitation perhaps on our giving is to ask the question not, well, how would we ever redistribute all of the income, but does everybody in the world have enough? Not everything that we could desire, because our desires are pretty infinite, but are the basics of food and water, enough shelter, the opportunity for our children to have an education, is there enough, minimally, so that there's not terrible want, even though there can be a desire for more? The thing which really, as I think Dick was pointing out, should drive us a little bit more to our knees in both confession, repentance, and also dedication. Um, the issues I realize I struggle with are all the issues of influence. I have to limit the kinds of food I eat because I have the choice of too many kinds of food. 
the big struggles at this point for my wife and I are asking, what kind of education do we desire for my child? As we live in Harlem, in New York City, not whether they will ever have an education. The diseases which we struggle with in the West are largely diseases of affluence, obesity, diabetes, many of the forms of cancer that we experience. Not all, but certainly many. The anxieties that we have are anxieties brought around by opportunity. What job should I take? Where, could I, where should I live? What major should I pursue? It strikes me um, that so often these are not the questions faced by most of our counterparts around the rest of the world. What would it mean for us to generously engage in that, not just by giving, but by actually engaging in the systems and structures of the world as part of our giving in time and attention? So that there'd be enough. The last thing that Paul begins to point to, and with which I'll end, is that giving is a gift which finds both the giver and the receiver in a relationship. You'll notice he says in verse 14, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that they that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Part of Paul, what was driving Paul, I think, across this 20-year journey that he had, this 20-year-long fundraising campaign, let that cause you to grow in pain, as you think about that, was the recognition, as I pointed out at the beginning, that for the Jerusalem church to receive this kind of an offering from the Gentile churches scattered throughout the North Mediterranean in the Roman Empire was a significant sign that even though they were divided in both time and ethnicity, in both religious practice, they were still united in Jesus Christ as one body. That this was the way the Gentile churches would acknowledge Jesus Christ came as a Jew and through the Jewish people we have salvation. And that might be part of what Paul is saying, that out of your poverty, somebody else's richness has overflowed to you. And this way you serve these people that you don't know and that you will never see. Theologian and Bible scholar N.T. Wright said the collection um, was this massive symbol, a great prophetic sign blazing across half a, com a continent trumpeting the fact that the people of God were being redefined around Jesus the Messiah as a single family. And that this was part and parcel of what Paul was doing. That when we give, the people to whom we give actually become part of the family to which we belong. We acknowledge our partnership. We acknowledge our community. We acknowledge our reciprocity together. It binds the giver and the receiver in a relationship. That's why we give gifts at birthdays and Christmas. I feel close to you. And I want you to receive this in hopes that you also will feel close to me. And Paul suggests that when we give, beyond the joy that we experience, beyond the partnership with God that we take part in, we're also binding together the community of God in both time and space to one another. So, for example, when you give to Grace Murillo over in Colombia with her work in Latin American missions and Uku, in part, your church is saying, we are there too. In every work, every time you preach in Latin American grace, we are there standing behind you, standing with you, praying for you. With every missionary that you touch in that way, you've established your presence in those places. You have a stake in what they're doing. And when God goes, good job, Grace, for preaching the gospel in Colombia, part of what he says is, Wonderful work, Community Bible Church. You were there as well. It's really why people like me who do fundraising talk about it as partnership, not just because it sounds better than I'd like you to give financially, but because when I talk to students, part of what I can say to them is when we do evangelism on campus, you do not do that alone. 
There are thousands of people around the United States who are standing with you right now in prayer and by committing themselves to you. And so part of the glory that you're receiving for God is going back to them. And that they're participating in it because it's as one body we do this together. It's the unity in the body of Christ. It's participating in what God is doing and being shaped more like him. And experiencing giving as a gift, which is why I think Paul actually grounds this entire passage in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that, through, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. In the end, Paul's inviting us to this process of joy. Not out of obligation, not out of deep calculation of what, how much we must give or what we should give, but instead, inviting us to participate in what God is doing, because God is a giver. God has given himself for us. Invites us, to, invites us to give ourselves for others. Which is why I think Frank Houghton was right when he went to that missionary community in China during the Boxer Rebellion to give them those words. When everything must be sacrificed. When you have to realize that all that you have already belongs to God. Perhaps the right words are those. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becomes poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel within us dwelling, make us what thou would have us be. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Let me pray. Lord, I know this community to be a generous community. Um, in its time, its attention, in its love, um, in its resources. Uh, and the quality of relationships they offer to guests like me and to one another around this room. So I pray, would you continue to draw us into your purposes and into your plan, so that more and more we would reflect what it means to look like Christ Jesus. And then we thank you, before we even think about what it means to give, or what it means to receive. Out of your richness, you chose to become poor, so that we who were poor, Thank you for the reality of that, the joy of that, and the privilege of that. May you be our model and our reason for all things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.